Gracious God, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the manner for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Please be seated. There is an unfortunate tendency with the gospel lesson for this morning, and, and I think I've been guilty of this as well, to make the text about you. To say, for example, well, you know, Peter wants to build these three structures on the mountain. He wants to stay up on the mountain and enjoy that mountaintop experience, but he needs to, to leave the mountain and go down into the valley and suffer and follow his Lord. Now that may be true, but that's really not what the text is about. It's not about you or me primarily. It's about Jesus and who he is and why that matters. In our gospel lesson, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up on a high mountain. Now in the ancient world, it was believed that mountains were special places. High mountains were special places where heaven and earth overlapped. And if you were going to meet God anywhere, it would be on a mountain. And not only does Jesus take three witnesses with him up on a high mountain, but he does so after waiting for six days. Notice in our gospel reading, Matthew 17, verse 1, on page 10 in your bulletin. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, flip back to page 8, the Old Testament reading. Exodus chapter 24, look at verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain... This is Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So, just as Moses encountered God on the mountain after a six-day wait, so Peter, James, and John will encounter God on another mountain, after a six-day wait, they will encounter God in the person of Jesus Christ. And I, I mentioned the six days and, and the seventh because those two numbers, and this is just an interesting observation, those two numbers appear together time and again in the Bible. The number six followed by seven. You know, there's six days God made the world, the seventh he rested. Uh, there's a number of references to a period of six years followed by a seventh. There's references to six items on a list followed by a seventh item. The two numbers just appear together often and it's, it's curious. I just bring it up because to me it's interesting. Maybe not to you, but we move on. Now, go back to the Gospel reading on page 10. 
Matthew 17, verse 2, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, it's interesting, those two men would appear on the mountain because those two men, Moses and Elijah, had encountered God on Mount Sinai during their respective lifetimes. Now, once again, they find themselves on a mountain to meet with God in the person of Jesus. Verse 4, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So, Roman number 1, in your sermon outline, page 11 in your bulletin, Peter seems to equate the three men. He lumps them all together. Peter thinks he should treat them all the same. Big mistake. Moses and Elijah may be the two biggest heroes from the Old Testament, but they don't belong on the same shelf with Jesus. And the Father, God the Father, will make that clear. Letter A. God's prophets are God's messengers. God's Son is God. There's a big difference between the two. God's messengers and God. In Romans 9, 5, Paul refers to Jesus as God over all, forever praised. Hebrews 1, verse 8 refers to the Son of God as God himself. And, of course, John opens his gospel with the words, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is to say, Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is God's self-expression. When we speak of God the Father and when we speak of God the Son, we're talking about a unique kind of a relationship, but a relationship that is reflected in some way here on earth. In the ancient world, a father is one who would bequeath or leave everything he has to his son. He would turn everything over to the son eventually, right? And the son is that person to whom everything would be given. He would receive everything the father has to give. He would carry on his father's legacy. That was the duty of a son in the ancient world. Now, in the same way, God the Father bequeaths or hands over all power and authority and dominion to Jesus. And Jesus, God's Son from all eternity, God's Son becomes a human being in space and time, born of the Virgin Mary, and as a human being, he receives power and authority and dominion from his Father in heaven and carries on his Father's legacy, his Father's gracious rule over all creation. That's what's going on when we talk about God the Father and God the Son. One gives, the other receives everything from him. Letter B. The Father hands over all things to his Son. He hands over all things to his Son. Now, why does the Father do this? Why does the Father hand all things over to his Son why is it that the Father will not deal with you or with me apart from his Son? 
Why? Roman numeral two. The Father dwells in unapproachable light. Unapproachable light. Paul writes in 1 Timothy, God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. In this earthly frame, we cannot behold him. Looking directly at the sun will destroy your eyesight. Looking directly at God destroys you. The only way you can look at the sun is with eye protection. You know, when uh, that eclipse happened near here a few years ago, uh, some people had, what, um, eclipse glasses, right? They could look at the sun. I wouldn't do it, (laughs) but I, I don't trust the glasses. I just don't have that faith, okay? But people were looking at the solar eclipse through those lenses, those special dark filters. The only way you can look at God is with eye protection as well. And that eye protection is the suffering Son of God on the cross. That's the way you behold God here and now. And by the way, even into eternity, there is no greater revelation of, his, of God's love than at the cross. That's where the heart of God is laid bare. There's no, when you and I are in eternity, we may learn other things about God, but we'll never have a greater revelation of his love than we see at the cross. That's paramount. Letter A, the voice from the cloud is terrifying. When the disciples heard that voice from heaven, they fell on their faces. They were terrified. It, it reminds me of Revelation 1, where Jesus appears in glory to the apostle John, and his voice is like thunder. What does John do? He falls down at his feet as one who is dead. Letter B. Luther said, this is the nude God. Deus nudus, the Latin phrase. The unmediated, the unbearable voice from heaven. By the way, do you know that if a noise is loud enough, it can kill you? Uh, Sound waves above 185 decibels will destroy your inner organs and can cause death. No wonder the Israelites on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, were terrified at the voice of God. We read in Exodus 20, verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood afar off and they said to Moses, You speak to us, Moses, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. The Israelites could not survive the voice of God from heaven. But they could tolerate the voice of Moses. And they they could disobey the voice of Moses as well. Just as God once spoke to his people through Moses, he now speaks to us through his son. Roman numeral three. The Father will reveal himself through his Son. And you can track that throughout the New Testament. Well, the Old as well. Through his Son he will reveal himself. Letter A, the voice of Jesus is comforting. It's comforting to sinners. Rise, he said, have no fear. 
Now contrast that with the unmediated, unbearable voice from heaven. So letter B, Luther said, Jesus is God fully clothed. God coming to us in a way we can bear. This is the Deus Revelatus, the way God chooses graciously to reveal himself to fallible sinners is through the person and the work of Jesus. It is the voice of a man. It is a voice that is forgiving, a voice that is merciful, a voice that is bearable. Roman numeral four, application. Beware the deus nudus, God unclothed. Beware of seeking God apart from Christ. And we do it. Beware of vision-casting ministers who claim direct revelation from God. They'll have a vision for the church. Now, that, that sounds good. Until you realize that this vision is directly from God. And that means if you disobey the vision, if you don't agree with the pastor, you're disobeying God. You're straying from the path. You don't belong here. We have to be very careful. I mean, yeah, God can do whatever he wants. God could appear to you. He could speak to you directly from heaven. You'd probably die, but he could do that. But whatever he does, or whatever you and I think he does, we must test against the plumb line of God's word. No, I'm very suspicious of private revelations. They always seem to take precedent over God's revelation in Christ. Your private revelation you'll hold dear and you will place it above the word of God. That's the temptation. Beware of that. Beware of thinking that God speaks to you apart from his word. Beware of seeking God inside of yourself. Beware of trusting your feelings or impressions or your, quote, lived experience as a source of divine revelation rather than trusting in God's word because your feelings easily lead you away from God's word. The human heart is an idle factory. We manufacture our own gods in order to justify, in order to validate whatever it is we want to do. And if we're not careful, we allow our feelings and our experience to trump the word of God. Don't look within yourself for God. The heart is deceitful above all things, the word of God tells us. Seek God outside of yourself. Seek God in the flesh of his son, Jesus Christ. Seek the man, Jesus, hanging on the cross for your salvation. Letter B, this distinction the Deus Nudus versus the Deus Revelatus explains Christ's odd behavior. And it's odd. Again, our gospel reading. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. By themselves. Verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. Not before the world, but before this little private audience only. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. 
Now, we know from God's Word, Jesus did things. He does things only God can do. He heals. He raises the dead. Jesus displays attributes that can only be attributed to God himself. He's eternal. He knows all things, and so on and so forth. And yet, his appearance was like that of any ordinary man. Jesus never went around with a halo. You could not tell who he was simply by looking at him. His face was not radiant. His clothing didn't shine, except in our gospel lesson for today. The transfiguration, my friends, is the only time Jesus actually looks like the God that he is. Why? Why does he hide his glory when he's in public and reveal his glory only when he's in private? That strikes us as odd. We wouldn't behave that way. We want our glory to be public. We want our shame to be private. Christ is the opposite. Why? It's because a Christ who shines gloriously on a mountaintop is not the Christ who is able to suffer and die for sinners. The Christ who radiates glory is immune to death. Only that Christ who lays aside his glory is of any help to sinners. Only that one. My friends, the transfiguration is important because it proves to the disciples, those three men, it proves who this man on the cross really is. This man is also God. They saw his divinity with their own eyes on the mountain. From the epistle reading for this morning, Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Yes, he did divine works, but his enemies attributed all that to the power of the devil. But now on the mountain, visibly, he's God. No disputing that. Because of the transfiguration, the disciples knew that the man hanging on the cross was no criminal. Because of the transfiguration, they knew the man on the cross was God and that God himself was hanging on the cross to reconcile all criminals to himself. On the cross, Jesus looks like anything but God, yet God he is, and it's the transfiguration which testifies to his divinity. My friends, the transfiguration and the crucifixion are two very closely related events, but they are related to one another in the same way that a photograph is related to its negative. The transfiguration is the positive image of Christ's glory. The crucifixion is the negative image of the very same thing. The power and the majesty of Jesus visible at the transfiguration was manifested at the cross through its very opposites weakness and suffering and death. God's power to save sinners was manifest in his own weakness and death. And I have two little columns at the end of your, your sermon outline really highlighting this difference. You see, in private, Jesus is glorified and he's majestic. In public, he's humiliated and rejected. In private, his garments are glistening. 
In public, his garments are taken from him. In private, he stands on a high mountain. In public, he's lifted high on a cross. In private, he's flanked by two heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah. In public, he's flanked by two criminals, showing that he identifies with sinners above all, right? Privately, all is light, all is bright. Publicly, all is darkness. Darkness hung over the land while he hung on the cross. If the transfiguration presents us with a positive image of Christ's divinity, the cross is the negative image of the very same thing. The cross is the image of the God who lays aside his glory to suffer and die in the place of sinners because it is that image alone that saves sinful people like you and me. Now as sinners, we do not instinctively seek after God. The psalmist makes clear no one seeks after God. We may seek after false gods, but not after the one true God. We instinctively flee from the one true God because of our own guilt. We fear condemnation, not just from one another, but from him. And if there is to be any reconciliation at all, if there is to be any relationship with God, he must initiate it. He must come to us. And for our sake, he must not come to us unclothed. He must not come to us in his unveiled glory. For our sake, he must come to us fully clothed in the flesh of his Son. For our sake, he must come to us in weakness, not in raw power. He must come to us as the suffering servant, bearing the sin of the world, and not as a conquering king. My friends, that is the God we can look at. That is the God we can receive. That is the God who alone welcomes and comforts sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.